0: You know, there are some moments in life that when they're transpiring, we don't really understand how significant they are, how truly monumental they are. In fact, sometimes they're, they're like a pivot in our, in our lives, and, and we don't even recognize it at that time. I can remember the very first time I ever met my wife. I was sitting behind her in church. Uh, the guy next to me says, I want to introduce you to the girl i 'm going to take out on a date i 'm going to ask her out on a date this week during the greeting time. Uh, we stood up he introduced me to to Jay Lynn. Uh, I met her for the very first time. We sat back down he leaned over and said, i 'm going to ask her out this week and as i 've told you before, I thought in my mind i 'm going to marry her next week and so uh, I, I never would have dreamed that in that in that little instance of of transaction, hi, my name is bill and, and she says i 'm jay Lynn and uh, That that moment ended up changing my life. I don't think anybody would have ever dreamed, and this goes on a much bigger monumental cataclysmic scale than that encounter, that when Jesus hung on the cross, a plan was coming to fruition that had been made before the world was ever created. Before the world was created, God knew that knew that Satan would sin and Adam would fall. Jesus is the Lamb that was slain before the foundation of the world. That's what the Apostle Peter taught in the book of 1 Peter. Before he ever spoke the earth into existence, he had a plan to redeem for himself a people for his own possession. That plan was coming to fruition on the cross. On Friday, the first week of April, A.D. 30, All of Satan and his minions were looking on and they were contemplating the fact we've won the battle. Can you believe it? We've beaten God. We've defeated his son. He's being crucified on the cross. We've won the day. And Jesus' enemies, they're they're surrounding the cross. They're taunting, they're mocking, they're belittling. Over and over, he saved others, he can't save himself. Where are his friends, they're in hiding. We're his followers. They're in fear and terror for their own lives. But, but on the cross, on that day, on Good Friday, God's plan was coming to pass. An eternal plan. A plan that was, a plan that was in existence before the world was even created. We've been working our way through the Gospel of Mark. And, and today I, I want us to think about the death of King Jesus. Look with me beginning in verse 21 of chapter 15. Let me read through verse 32. They pressed into service a passerby coming from the country, Simon of Cyrene, the father of Alexander and Rufus, to bear his cross. Then they brought him to the place Golgotha, which is translated place of a skull. They tried to give him wine mixed with myrrh, but he did not take it. And they crucified him and divided up his garments among themselves, casting lots for them to decide what each man should take. It was the third hour when they crucified him. The inscription of the charge against him read, The King of the Jews. They crucified two robbers with him, one on his right and one on his left. And the scripture was fulfilled which says, And he was numbered with transgressors. Those passing by were hurling abuse at him, wagging their heads and saying, Ha, you who are going to destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days. Save yourself and come down from the cross. In the same way, the chief priests also, along with the scribes, were mocking him among themselves and saying, He saved others. He cannot save himself. Let this Christ, the King of Israel, now come down from the cross so that we may see and believe. Those who were crucified with him were also insulting him. We've already noticed that in the trial before Pilate, Jesus is on trial for his life for being the King of the Jews. Look back with me in verse 9. Pilate answered them, do you want me to release for you? The king of the Jews? Look in verse 12. Then what shall I do with him whom you call king of the Jews? Then verse 18. And they began to acclaim him, hail king of the Jews. They're going to put a placard over his head that says king of the Jews. And what Mark is describing for us is the death of Jesus meticulously fulfilling the plan of God. I want you to notice three things as we prepare to take the Lord's Supper this morning from this passage. The first one is this King Jesus begins his reign of grace in one family on the way to the cross. He's been flogged, we talked about it last week. He's probably barely able to walk. Typically, a crucified man would carry the cross beam to the site of execution. Jesus has been under interrogation all night long. Jesus has been severely beaten by Roman flogging. He's already lost a considerable amount of blood. He is probably dying of thirst and he is emaciated. And so they press into service a man by the name of Simon of Cyrene in verse 21. The Romans could enlist someone to carry the crossbeam for, exec- for the person to be executed if he was unable to make it himself to the side of execution. And so he mentions a man by the name of Simon. But notice the parenthetical comment by John Mark, the author, the father of Alexander and Rufus. There might have been several men from Cyrene named Simon, there would have likely been many men from the city of Cyrene, named Simon. But only one man had two boys, Alexander and Rufus. Apparently, the readers of the gospel knew this family. Interestingly enough, one of these two boys is mentioned in chapter 16 in the book of Romans. It's very likely that Mark wrote the gospel from Rome, and the first people to read it were Christians in Rome. So as they're reading this, And they hear about Simon of Cyrene, they begin to wonder almost immediately, is that that the Simon that we know? And then he says parenthetically, the father of Alexander and Rufus. They think, yes, that's that family. That's the family that we know. Apparently, as a result of this encounter, this quote-unquote chance encounter between Simon and Jesus... On the way to Golgotha, Simon is saved. And as a result of Simon's salvation, his sons Alexander and Rufus, and in fact it appears the entire family must have been saved. At a moment where he is at his weakest physically, beaten, stumbling, bleeding profusely, wide-open wounds on his back. As the demons of hell look on, laughing and taunting and belittling, Jesus' reign of grace is already being established before he even reaches Golgotha. By happenstance, I think not. You know, we live in a day where fatherhood isn't thought of as really necessary anymore. But his fathers are depreciated and diminished. On most sitcoms, the father's the, the goofiest, doofus in the entire show. And fathers are depicted in the press as being kind of, kind of um, well, you can, you can take him or leave him. Uh, but we find a father right here who apparently came to saving faith in Jesus Christ and led his whole family to follow Jesus as Savior and Lord. Simon gives us a, a snapshot of the kind of father every father ought to be, the kind of husband every married man ought to be, who leads the way by carrying the cross, by taking up his cross daily and following Jesus, by being a disciple who has heartfelt love and devotion and passion for following Jesus. In fact, it's not unlikely that when this was read, they would have thought of Jesus' injunction to discipleship. If any man wants to come after me, let him take up his cross daily and follow me. What we need in the church of the Lord Jesus Christ are real men. Men who believe that following Jesus is the most important thing in life. Men who believe that serving their family honors Jesus. Men who believe that loving their wives and laying down their lives for their wife is what God has called us to do and who he has called us to be. We need men who are committed to the lordship of Jesus Men who understand their role as leaders in the family. Who are not casual in their Christianity, but passionate in their Christianity. Who aren't in church and out of church, but men who are in church and who lead their family to be a part of a local church. But I praise God for an army of women who have a slug as a husband and who decide if my husband won't lead, I will lead. If my husband won't pray, I will pray. If my husband won't teach my children the Bible, I will teach my children the Bible. If my husband won't take us to church, I will take us to church. Praise God for women, single moms and women who who are spiritually single, so to speak, who will not let their children go to hell without fighting for their soul in prayer reading the Bible to them at night, who are committed to loving them in gospel truth. We need men and we need women much like Simon. And on the way to the cross, we find one family transformed by Christ's reign of grace before he is ever even nailed to the cross. But I want you to notice, secondly, King Jesus is enthroned on the cross outside the city. Mark's giving us some details in very very pointed fashion. Notice he tells us where Jesus was crucified, Golgotha. And he tells us what the word Golgotha means. It means place of a skull. It would have been outside the city. It would have been on the main road in and out of the city of Jerusalem. Because the Romans crucified people where many people would see them. As a a warning and a message, this could happen to you if you step out of line. So they crucify him in a place called Golgotha, which is translated place of a skull. Now we don't know exactly why it was called place of a skull. It might have been because it looked like a skull. It might have been on a a hill. Maybe Calvary was on a hill. And when you look at it from a distance, it's kind of got a skull-like feature. And so it might be that the site itself looked like a skull or it might be it was a site of execution. It's where men would go to die, and so it was known as place of a skull. And when he arrived there, they tried to give him some wine mixed with a sedative, mixed with myrrh. They're going to impale him on a cross. They're going to drive stakes through his wrist. They're going to they're situate his feet and drive stakes, a stake through his ankles. You can imagine that kind of pain would send a person into shock, into, into convulsions, and, and, and maybe they would almost immediately begin to, to die, but they didn't want them to die very quickly. Typically, they would languish on the, on the cross for a, a couple of days, and that is, they wanted them to suffer. They wanted them to suffer as an example to others. And so they would, they would give them this wine mixed with myrrh, kind of a sedative to, to, to dull the pain. But Jesus refused it because he wanted, to, he, wanted to, he wanted to embrace all of the horror. He needed a clear mind. He had some things he wanted to say from the cross. He, he, he wanted to embrace it all without any of it being dulled. So he, it says he did not take it. And then it says they crucified him. They crucified him on a cross, and we have a picture in our mind of what that cross looked like. Actually, there were four different kinds of crosses that, that uh, were used in crucifixions. Some crosses looked like, a, like the letter I, and people would be impaled on that. That was the way that the Phoenicians, that were, they were the inventors of this cross horrific form of execution. They would often just impale a person on there. Particularly after an invading army conquered a foe, they would take the leaders of the country. They would take the, uh, the king or what we might think of as a prime minister or, or, and the military leaders and they would, they would impale them on that cross at the entrance to the city to humiliate not just the, the leader but the entire nation. Uh, another kind of cross looks like an X, and they would, they would spread them out like this, and they would either tie their hands, or they would use spikes to impale them on that, on that cross. Another's like a, a capital T, and it would be much the same way. They would have their hands up like this, and then they would send one spike through the, the um, ankle bones, and then they would impale their hands to the top of what we would consider maybe a capital T, but Jesus was crucified on what's known as a Roman cross most likely. It's what we would call a lowercase t in the way that it would look because over his head was a placard that, that uh, stated his crime. He was being crucified for, being, for uh, saying that he was the king of the Jews. They would typically strip a man naked before they would crucify him in order to heighten the humiliation of the of the of the moment and his clothing would then be fair gain for the soldiers that were uh, guarding the site four soldiers would be given the be given the as a detachment and they would they would guard the site so that no one would try to take the person down uh, to keep uh, to keep the turmoil under control and a little perk that they received was they were able to, to divide up the possessions all Jesus had were just a few garments. And so it says, and they crucified him and divided up his garments among themselves, casting lots for them to decide what each man should take. It's kind of a side comment, kind of an incidental comment. We wouldn't think much about it. But the first century Jewish Christian would have thought much about it because almost immediately his mind would go back to Psalm chapter 22, a Psalm of David, a prophetic psalm, and much of Psalm 22 finds its fulfillment meticulously fulfilled in the crucifixion of Jesus. Psalm chapter 22 and verse 18 says this, "...they divided my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots." In fact, the apostle John, in his depiction of the crucifixion scene, quotes that very verse. A plan that was initiated before the creation of the world is now coming to fulfillment in fine detail as they gamble for his clothing. And he goes on to say in verse 25, it was the third hour when they crucified him, sometime around 9 o'clock in the morning. So what Mark is describing for us are the events from 9 a.m. to 12 p.m. in this particular passage. It's going to give us the highlight, so to speak, of the first three hours that Jesus languished on the cross. And then he indicates the inscription of the charge against him, which read, the king of the Jews. When you look at the other gospels, there was some debate going on. In fact, in, in John, the, the religious leaders, they knew that Pilate put that charge over Jesus' head in the way that he did, not just to humiliate Jesus, but to humiliate them. They wanted the, the inscription to read, He said, I am king of the Jews. And Pilate says, I, I've, I've written what I have written. And so every Jewish person saw that. The Romans were saying to you, this is the best you can do. This humiliated human being, drifting in and out of consciousness, Hanging there in unbelievable suffering. That's the best you can do for a king. And so he was seeking to humiliate Jesus, but he's putting the Jews in their place as well. So the inscription says, King of the Jews. Since they crucified two robbers with him, one on his right and one on his left. Luke specifically says that this fulfilled An Old Testament prophecy as well. It comes from Isaiah, Isaiah chapter 53 and verse 12. Therefore I will give him a portion among the great, and he will divide the spoils with the strong, because he poured out his life unto death and was numbered with transgressors. For he bore the sin of many and made intercession for the transgressors. Notice he was numbered with transgressors. A plan that, was in, the plan that was conceived before the world was ever created is finding fulfillment in meticulous detail. And there's nobody that would have been watching who would have thought, this is God's will, this is God's plan, this is God's way. I think the angels in heaven would have been gasping in horror. They would have been stunned that the one who created them, King Jesus, is now dying on the cross, the most horrific death the ancient world had known. And the the demons of hell would have been, they would have been clapping and chanting and reveling in their victory. And yet in the very fact that there were two insurrectionists, two murderers, two thieves, two men associated with Barabbas who had been released, one on his right, one on his left, that fulfilled ancient prophecy and even beyond ancient prophecy a plan inaugurated before the beginning of time. But that phrase one on his right, one on his left. We looked at it a couple of weeks ago, one on his right, one on his left. One on his right, one on his left. One on his right, one on his left. Back in chapter 10, Mark's gospel, Jesus said, "I'm going to I'm going to be betrayed. I'm going to be crucified." They're going to kill me, and I'm going to be raised on the third day. And James and John, speaking what was probably in the mind of all of the disciples, they said, are you finished with that? Because we want to ask you something. And he says, what do you want to ask me? May we sit on your right and on your left in your glory. One on your right, one on your left. One on your right, one on your left. Jesus said, you don't, you don't have any idea what you're asking. They said, we understand what we're asking. He just said, I'm going to be crucified. And they're saying, hey, you're going to set up a kingdom. And we want to sit in prominent places in that kingdom. The other disciples just we're fit to be tied because that's what they wanted. Now we need to be reminded of the fact these two men loved Jesus. They had left virtually everything to follow Jesus. They left a thriving profession, a fishing business that was enormously successful in order to be Jesus' disciples. It's not that they didn't love Jesus, it's that they had the same problem that most of us have this insatiable longing for recognition this drive to to be thought of highly, to be in a place of prominence and prestige and power and dominion. and, And what Mark's saying right here, one on the right, one on the left, this is where it's found. It's found in laying down one's life for the kingdom. It's found in taking up one's cross and following Jesus. What does it mean to reign with Christ? It means to be willing to die with Christ. And it means to die to self for Christ. I want you to notice thirdly, <clears throat> the King Jesus is taunted on the cross by His enemies. He's taunted by His enemies. In verse 29, those who are passing by, they mock Him, they belittle Him, they, they, they taunt Him. You who are going to destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days... Save yourself and come down from the cross. He never said that, did he? What he said was, you destroy this temple, meaning himself, and in three days I will raise it again. The chief priests, the religious leaders, the most highly respected men in ancient Judaism are there. They're mocking him and taunting him. He saved others. He saved others, but he can't save himself. He forgave others of their sins and, and granted them salvation, but he can't save himself. Hey, if you're the Messiah, the King of Israel, come down from the cross, and we'll believe in you. Taunting, mocking, belittling. And then to add insult to injury, the two men on either side, they themselves are drifting in and out of Consciousness. We don't know if they've suffered the same kind of abuse that Jesus has suffered or not. It's not likely. But those men are insulting him as well. We look at this and we wonder what in the world is going on. The creator of the universe, the most magnanimous person that has ever walked the face of this earth, a person who has never sinned and only done good. He confronted religious hypocrisy boldly and courageously and forthrightly. Now finds himself gasping for breath and drifting in and out of consciousness. Well, he interpreted this very event for us on two occasions. Turn back with me to Mark chapter 10 and verse 45. Mark chapter 10 and verse 45. In chapter 10, verse 45, For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. This is what he's doing right there. He is dying to purchase for God a people for God's own possession turn with me to chapter 14. Look with me in chapter 14 in verse 24 where they are gathered together celebrating the Passover but Jesus is inaugurating the Lord's Supper. And in verse 24 he says, this is my blood of the covenant which is poured out for many. Here's the final thought. The final thought is this. What was what was actually happening, nobody understood. Jesus was dying for sinners. Jesus was paying the penalty for sin. And when we, celebrate, when we celebrate the Lord's Supper, that's what we're remembering. Were we there when they crucified our Lord? Absolutely we were there. He bore our sins in His body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. We would have been hiding with Peter. We would have been cowering in terror like a coward. We would have been watching from a distance, afraid of being noticed. But what was actually happening was he was dying for you and me, and that's what we're going to celebrate in the Lord's Supper. I'm going to lead us in a word of prayer, and our praise team is going to come, and we're going to join them in song. The chairman of the deacons is going to assist me as we distribute the elements. The men that will be coming in are our deacons. Our deacons do many, many important tasks in our church. There's no task more sacred or more holy or more important than when they distribute the Lord's Supper to us. And so I'm going to ask you if you'll bow with me in prayer. Father in heaven, we thank you that Jesus prepared us for these moments by telling us what was actually going to transpire on the cross when he died. So, Father, I pray in Jesus' name that in these next few minutes, you would feed our soul as we partake of the Lord's Supper, in Jesus' name, amen. Men, will distribute the bread, and and we'll ask you if you'll just hold it in your hand, and we'll all take it at the same time. In John chapter 6, Jesus said he was the bread of life in the wilderness. Moses was God's instrument, in a sense, to provide manna. But everyone who ate of the manna in the wilderness died. But Jesus said, whoever eats the bread that I will give him shall never die. Do you take and eat? Father, we thank you that your word explains so clearly to us that when we, when we eat this bread, we're being reminded of the death you bore in our place, and we pray, Father, that you would use it to give us greater love and devotion to the Savior in Jesus name. Amen. Men will distribute the juice. The old hymn says, "What can wash away my sin?" And the answer is "Nothing but the blood." Of Jesus, would you take and drink?